0: We are at the end of the section of the seven churches uh, in the book of Revelation. And there were seven churches in Asia Minor that Jesus had written to, and we, went, we haven't gone through them in order because the structure of the passage has put certain churches together. And the churches in the middle, we've called the messy middle, and they've gone from bad to worse. <laughs> they've gone from the, the church uh, at Pergamum, that was a mixture of, of truth and error. And we went to the church of Thyatira, that was a mixture of error and truth. And now we've come uh, to the bottom of the barrel. Uh, we've saved the worst for last. Welcome to the church of Sardis. So if you would please stand uh, as we, uh, out of respect for the reading of God's word, let's read together Revelation chapter 3, 1 through 6. To the church in Sardis. I will come against you like a thief, and you will know—you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Uh, if you were alive and aware in the 1980s and maybe 1990s, there was this fad, they're still around, there was this fad that began to sweep the nation called um, uh, of motivational posters. If you worked in any kind of business environment or uh, in an office space, usually they would have some of these posters up where, where they would take some, some characteristic or some value and there would be an inspirational picture and then the word would be there and then a description. Uh, my, I actually have one of these. I have one of these in my room in my office at the house and it, it, says, it says determination. And then under it it says, uh, don't give up. Success might be just around the next corner. I I basically, I mainly have that in my office because it's a picture. The inspirational picture is a picture of of some downhill skaters, which I'm into. Uh, And whenever I look at that picture, I also think, well, maybe, but also it could be road rash and broken bones right around the corner. And, And playing off that idea. There was a company that um, began to like a parody of these motivational posters called Demotivators, and my favorite one was a picture of of like the the just the last strugglers in a marathon, just barely crawling across the finish line, and and the caption said, "Failure," and then underneath it it said, "Someone has to be last. Why not you?" Well, then why am I telling you that? If, if the church of Sardis had a church office, that's the poster that would have been hanging next to the Mr. Coffee machine with bad three-day-old coffee in it, because they were the last. Out of all the churches that Jesus addresses uh, in this letter, the church of Sardis is the bottom of the barrel. They're coming in dead last. Jesus has nothing good to say about them. Uh, Sardis is so bad; he's got nothing good to say about them. Sardis is so bad that they've not only lost their positive witness to the culture, which is really what all these letters are about. Remember, these letters are written to churches, not to individuals, and the thing that is at stake is whether or not that church is able to present a positive and healthy witness to Jesus to the culture around them. Sardis has not only lost their ability to give a positive witness, they've sunk so low they're giving a negative witness out into the world. Uh, They become so bad it's almost impossible to tell who's a real Christian from the fake ones within them. And yet, as amazing as this sounds, as bad as they are, Jesus comes to them and treats them as a church of Christ and offers them hope and offers them uh, encouragement and and offers them ultimately a vision uh, that he is the one who holds it all together. And their hope is in trusting and having faith in him. Uh, and so, with that, we're going to look at what the main problems are with Sardis. And then I want to spend, hopefully, most of our time talking about the hope that Jesus is giving them. So first, what is what is the first problem? The first thing with the church of Sardis is is this, they look like they're life-giving, but they're actually giving out death. They look to be life-giving, but they are actually selling death to the culture. Uh, on the early, early morning of September 29th, 1982, there was a 12-year-old girl named Mary Kellerman came to her mom and dad uh, complaining of a sore throat And a runny nose, her mom and dad took one extra-strength Tylenol capsule and gave it to Mary, and by 7 o'clock that morning, she was dead. Over the course of the next week in the Chicago area, four more people mysteriously died, and as the investigators started to put it all together, they realized that the one thing that everyone had in common was that they had taken a Tylenol extra-strength capsule right before they died. And as they did a test on these capsules, they found out that what happened was the capsules looked like Tylenol capsules. On the outside, they looked exactly like Tylenol capsules, but someone had taken those capsules home and pulled them apart, emptied the contents, and refilled them with cyanide and put them back in the bottles and then brought them back to the store in order for them to be sold as just a random mass murder act. Whoever did it has never been caught to this day. And so when the people opened the bottles of Tylenol, they pulled the Tylenol out. It looked exactly like a Tylenol capsule, but inside of it, on the inside, it was actually poison. It was cyanide. And that is a perfect illustration of what happened to the church of Sardis. On the outside, they looked exactly like a Christian church, to outside appearances, for people outside the church at least. They looked like a Christian church, but on the inside, what they actually were was poisonous. Uh, They were not only dead, but they had repackaged all of the death of culture and were selling it back to the world in a Christianized package. That's the church of Sardis. How do we know that? Listen to verse 1. And Jesus says to them, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Here's the thing that word reputation, usually in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, it's used to talk about reputation to the world or the, the way you look in the eyes of the world. And in the eyes of that culture, or the eyes of Sardis, they had a great reputation with the culture. Why? Because they had adopted almost every evil thought, every aberrant religious practice, every immoral attitude that the culture surrounding them championed. And so to the eyes of the culture, they had a great reputation because they looked just like them, approved of everything they did, and they loved them. They loved the church of Sardis. Remember the situation. Uh, in these churches and throughout the rest of the the, the book of Revelation, there's a three pronged attack that Satan attacks the church with. First, he applies civic, government, cultural pressure on the church to give up its uh, its to give up its Christian ideals and adopt the ideals of the world. Uh, and then there's persecution to cause fear and confusion among the church. And then on the other side, there's a compromised version of Christianity that's offered that says, if you'll just accept this slightly compromised version of Christianity, everything will be great. We'll love you. You'll be loved. No problems, no persecution, no pressure. Everything will be great. And so, you know, like we talked about a few weeks ago, there would be, you know, the, the pressure in that culture took the form of these trade guilds. In order to work, to be a professional, you had to be a member of a trade guild and go to the trade guild dinners where there was worship uh, of false gods, eating of meat sacrificed to these false gods, and then it would break down into a big party of sexual immorality at the end, and you had to go and participate in that, or you'd have trouble working, finding a job. There were parades that went through the city uh, it went right through your neighborhood, and everyone was expected to come out and support that parade and worship the gods uh, that it presented. Uh, and so the church of Sardis, when those things happened, when they were called to participate in those trade guild dinners, they were, they were right in there, ready to celebrate uh, and be entertained by every sin that Christ died for. And when the parade came through the neighborhood, Church of Sardis, front row, egging it on, worshiping all the the gods of of sex, of that culture, and everything that they worshipped, posting it on Facebook later, whatever it is they did. Uh, When people questioned the idea of a God who could be a judge, they said, not our God, not realizing that A God that doesn't judge is a God of no justice. Uh, And when people questioned them about how Jesus might be the only way to heaven, they said, not our Jesus. He's maybe a way to heaven. But that's ridiculous to think that Jesus uh, could be possibly the only way to heaven. What were they doing? They were breaking the third commandment. For sure, as Tim pointed out in our reading, the law, the third commandment, isn't just about using God's name as a swear word. It's really about uh, it's about taking the name of God upon yourself. When we become Christians, it's an act of God putting His name upon you, and then going out into the world and completely misrepresenting who God is and what the way of life and, and 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 human flourishing is to the culture. Uh, that's what they were doing, completely misrepresenting to the surrounding culture, to their neighbors, to the people they worked with, totally misrepresenting who God was and what their problem was and what the solution was, which are super important things. There's a really scary part at the end of the book of Revelation where God says, uh, when he's talking about people who are on the outside of of this, the New Jerusalem, ex, uh, people who are excluded from the presence of God and left in their own darkness, there's, he's, in that list, there's the word cowards. And people, uh, a lot of commentators believe that that word cowards is talking about people like those in the church of Sardis, uh, which might sound really harsh. How is it that people who are folding under that pressure would be called cowards by God. It seems so harsh. But the reality is what they were doing was they had lost not just their positive witness to Jesus. It wasn't like they had just holed themselves up somewhere and completely disengaged the world. They were engaging the world, but with a false gospel and a false Jesus and a repackaged uh, poisonous version of the same cultural death that was killing the people around them in a Christian capsule that looked just like the real church. That's devastating. And that's why it's such a big deal. Now, the parents of... Um, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to lose a child. I was, when I was a young boy, I lost my mom. That was super tragic. But now that I have kids, I cannot imagine how horrible it would be to lose a child. And when I re- read this story about these people, uh, the family of Mary Kellerman who had given that her this Tylenol, I can't imagine how compounded that agony would be if you knew that you had accidentally caused the death of one of your children by giving them poison. Can you even begin to imagine and wrap your mind around the kind of agony that would come with that? <laughs> Uh, and the, cere- the you know the, you might know, read this passage. You may read it, and you may think, "Wow, that's harsh!" Everything that Jesus is saying right here. But what it really is is a compassionate warning, because the reality is, there are going to be people who come before Jesus on the final day who were never Christians at all, who had believed this poisonous, repackaged, cultural death version of Christianity that was given to them, and Jesus is going to say, "Away from me! I never knew you." And also, maybe even sadder or as sad, is there's going to be Christians who realize that they had given that poison to other people by supporting and by upholding these false doctrines that bring death. And so Jesus, in his compassion, because he loves us, gives these harsh warnings. This is what this really is. This is what it produces. That's why you don't want to do it. Why you want to hold, one reason, why you want to hold on to faithful witness. We're going to see as we go through this letter that the letters of the seven churches and the vision series that come after that are all intimately connected. We're going to especially see in the bold judgments and in the depiction of the rise of the beast and the false prophet and the harlot uh, that all those things are symbolic of this happening in real life. The false prophet is, is rising up and persecuting and causing pressure, uh, or the beast is causing pressure on the church. The false prophet is rising up with a counterfeit version of reality, a counterfeit version of the faith. And the harlot represents uh, the reward for buying into that compromise. But the end is destruction. The end is destruction. The second thing that's going on with the, with the church at Sardis is that they are so mixed up uh, that it becomes almost impossible from a human standpoint, and especially for us reading this passage, they become so mixed up it's almost impossible for us to tell who's alive and who's dead. There's, there's a movie called Pearl Harbor that... Maybe you've seen about the raid on Pearl Harbor. And right after the raid in the movie, uh, all the people who are injured and wounded uh, and are, are all converging on this tiny local base hospital. It's completely overwhelming it. There are people that are bringing in carts of people who are dead, people who are dying, people who are wounded in various degrees of severity. Uh, and there was in the story that a nurse who's 19 years old. She just got out of school. It was her first day on the job. And one of the doctors came to her. And as her very first day on the job, the first thing she had to do as a nurse, he gave her a marker and told her to go through the crowd, go through all the people, and look through the bodies, look for signs of life, and mark people's foreheads. Who, who's able, Who can we save? Who is still alive? And who's already dead? And who's already dying? she's agonizing over this because she's sh- sh- moving through all of these bodies and some of them are, are so borderline it's almost impossible to tell. Is that a pulse? Is it not a pulse? Is it, a, is it breath? Is it not a breath? And she has to mark these people and it's agonizing in her, and the confusion and the pain and the suffering is causing her in the midst of this is <sighs> awful. Now, thankfully... Fortunately, praise God. Uh, figuring out who is dead and who is alive in the faith is way above our pay grade. Amen. I had uh, a <laughs> great story. I was, uh, had a, a really good friend of mine who's gay. His mom was a Christian, condemned, had, had like really um, been harsh with him, telling him, You're going to hell, God's sending you to hell. And as I was talking to him, I had one of my good friends, another man, a Christian, behind me in the booth at the restaurant. He leans over and he goes, Wow, your mom's in charge of sending people to hell? (laughs) Meaning, way above her pay grade, way above our pay grade. Uh, However, it can cause a lot of confusion. It can cause us a lot of fear, especially as you read this passage. You see, Uh, Jesus seems to be saying some harsh things to the people in his church, and maybe if you're like me, you read that, and you're like, "Uh, uh, who am I? Who am I in this letter? What does that mean uh, to our salvation? And what is it? what do we have to do? What do we not have to do? And who are are these different people? There's three categories. There's the people that Jesus says, I'm coming against you. That's bad. There's the people that Jesus says, you're sleeping, wake up. That's better. (laughs) And then there's the people who says, you're awake, you're faithful. Well, How do you tell uh, who's who? How do you know? And and the reality is that every church is a mixture. It's a mixed multitude of, of true believers who are faithful, of believers who are compromised, and also of unbelievers who are in the church and don't even know that they're not believers. And the worse a church gets... The more a church teaches things that are not Christianity, the more that number increases because what you win people with is what you win them to. So how do you know? I mean, for us, for our purposes, is there, any, is, there any, is there any hope that we can see in here? Is there anything that we can see in this that will give us encouragement and hope? And ultimately, that's the point of what Jesus is saying in here. It's not to condemn people, but to offer us hope. Um. You know, p- people have different ideas about how this whole salvation thing works out. Some people believe that uh, you get in by grace, that by, it's a pure act of God's grace and mercy in Christ, and he accepts you into his covenant and into his people by grace. But then, once you're in, there's some like unspoken or like level of faithfulness or... Good works, or there 's something you got to like keep adding to it to contribute in order to stay in and so there 's a system or a belief that you get in by faith, you get in by grace, but you stay in by works, you stay in by your faithfulness uh, on the other hand, so that 's over here on the other hand there 's another uh, belief or another system called that people call uh, eternal security, and that belief says that uh, What matters is that you believe in Jesus, and that's all that matters. If you say, I believe in Jesus, uh, if you have made a profession of faith, when you say to yourself, I believe in Jesus, uh, even if you do continue to say, I believe in Jesus, that's what's most important. And no matter whatever else may happen in your life or whatever else is going on, that's what you look to to know that you're saved. That day when you filled out the pledge card, the day when you walk down on the altar call, uh, or the fact that you're able to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And of course, both of those positions are heresy. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Because we are, you know, we're a reformed church. We believe that we're saved by faith, by Jesus. There's nothing that you add to that. Uh, the biblical truth, the biblical truth, uh, and those two sides, they just fight against each other all the time because each one is the other one's worst nightmare, right? The people who, who think it's really important to be faithful and to, and, uh, to, to witness and to, to try to be obedient to God, it sounds like those guys are just saying none of that's even important, doesn't even matter, and that's fair assessment. Over here, these guys are saying, we're just adding, you're making it all about works because if I'm in by grace or I'm saved by works, then I'm already unsaved and I'm just going to quit. And there's some truth to that too. So here, when we look at all those passages that have to do with all this and stuff that Jesus is saying in this passage, we have to make all of them make sense together. They all have to come together to make sense. God intended his word to make sense. And so the proper understanding of all that is a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. One of the key key words in there is perseverance, which means that when Christ puts his hand on us, when he gives us a new heart, when he puts his spirit within us and brings us to life, he also promises that he is going to protect us through life. He's going to preserve us through life. And that we may have bad days, we may have bad weeks, you might have a bad year, you might have a bad decade. But ultimately, over the course of life, you see a trajectory of faithfulness and a trajectory of faithful witness to Jesus. Um, and that's what, what God is calling out here. It's not, uh, you do not have to add anything to your salvation. Jesus has one, Period. Uh, However, it's not just a static thing. It's not a once and done. I make a confession of faith in Jesus and nothing else matters in my life. That actually discourages God's people. It brings discouragement to God's people because then you could never say to someone, look, God is producing fruit in your life. Look at that and be encouraged. And it takes that encouragement away. Uh, But perseverance of the faith, what, what does it mean? In context, what Jesus is saying through these letters... Is it what real faith looks like? It's not what you do. It's not a bunch of works that you can make a checklist off of. It's remaining, it's having faith. It's believing in the real Jesus. Jesus as he's presented to us in the New Testament. And it's maintaining a faithful witness to him in the world. Uh, Let me give you a couple illustrations. First one's really bad. But I love it, so I'm going to do it anyways. Okay. I'm going to clarify this at the end. So one of my favorite movies is Starship Troopers. You with me? Amen, brothers. So there's this Starship Troopers. There's this infantry unit, and they have this hardcore sergeant. And when he gets all the new recruits in, uh, they're going up against these awful bug invaders, these insect invaders that are just terrifying and horrible. Uh, he's, he's like missing an eye and a limb or something. Just super hardcore guy. And he says, I got one rule in my division. Everybody fights, nobody quits. Now, why is that a bad interpretation? That's, why is that a bad illustration? Because it could make you think that staying in depends upon you fighting and never quitting. And so you have to look at that on the videotape, not on the picture. Because I got plenty of days where I have quit i got plenty of days where I have not fought, plenty of days where I've given in, given up. However, over the course of the life, and this gives people great hope. If you can look at the course of your life since coming to Christ, and if you can say, man, even when I haven't wanted to, I've always stayed in the fight. I've always like been compelled to come back to Jesus because I know there's nowhere else for me to go. No matter how much temptation, no matter how much you may be pummeled, no matter how much sin may take over your life for a while, you always come back to Jesus. You always renew your efforts and start again. Everybody fights over the course of a life. Nobody quits. If that's true, you can look at that and say, that is preservation of the saints. That is God's work in and through me, keeping me on course. Amen? As another illustration. This one's better. So I just flew to this wedding on uh, Friday night, flew uh, to um, Matt Cusbitt, our, our, our brother Matt Cusbitt, married to uh, Lydia Cusbitt now, up in Oakland. I flew up there, and I, um, so I got to the airport, San Diego Airport. I flew southwest. It's Pride weekend. Uh, there's, there's rainbow flags everywhere. I'm standing in line, and I'm realizing... I'm like wearing, I didn't, I didn't want to pack a bunch of clothes, so I wore my suit with me. I've got this really nice tailored blue suit with a fan, and a really nice fabric and a clean white shirt, and I've got a fancy bag. I just had my hair done, and I'm realizing I'm looking at about as metrosexual as I've ever looked in my life, and I'm sitting in the Southwest Airlines Terminal. It's Pride weekend, and I'm completely fitting in. I'm told blending in so well, I've got total camouflage on, and I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. I get into the line, I get into the TSA line, and uh, this guy comes past me this way. He's got long hair, he's got a beard, literally looks like Jesus. He's got a ball cap on, carrying a backpack, wearing sandals. At first, I thought he was like like super crunchy, uh, like hipster guy. Um, uh, and he gives me like the, the chin nod, and I'm thinking maybe my tattoos are showing because he's covered with tattoos. It uh, gives me the chin nod, and there was, we got this, this second, this weird second of, like, connection. We're like, what's up, brother? And I was like, wow, that was weird. And I didn't even notice it. I come back around the line, the TSA line again, and I see his hat. His hat says, big old block letters, anchored in Christ. Uh, on the back, it's like, I love Jesus. His backpack, has got a giant, giant patch on the back of his backpack, it's like, Forgiven in Christ. Uh, His tattoos are all Christian tattoos. Looking like Jesus himself. And I'm realizing, I go, whoa, dude. That guy is totally flying the flag in the midst of a thousand rainbow flags around us. Uh, (laughs) And I was like, and I was looking at myself. I'm like, I'm completely blending in. now listen. I'm not saying that that's the best way to witness to culture. I'm not saying, uh, you know, you can, always, you can always take that way too far. That can become an obnoxious thing. But do you remember when you were first saved? Remember when you were first saved? I mean, and you wanted to put like four foot block letter Jesus across the back windshield of your car. You couldn't stop, you know, just, it made me think, do I blend in too much? Do I want to blend in too much? Do we blend in too much? Do I blend in because I'm worried about what might happen to me if I don't? Those are all like the tiny beginnings of a compromise that ended in the chaos that was Sardis. Uh, And finally, the most important thing, let me add on to those illustrations, the most important thing is love. Because you can do both of those things really well, but be it so obnoxious and hateful, that it doesn't do any good and that can be you can be you can have completely perfect theology you can be a very uh, outspoken witness for Jesus and be completely unsaved at the same time and so love and compassion and the the the, the a true sense of love for the culture around us is super important in that mix i just read a great article that talked about how the church instead of engaging in culture war we need to be engaging in culture care I was like, wow, that that is our, our church value of presenting a beautiful orthodoxy. We hold fast to the truth. We don't compromise, but we present that in love and in compassion and in sacrifice and in service to the world. Okay, last thing. What is Jesus' response to this church that's so messed up? My kids, when one of the other kids is busted and about to get in trouble, you should see their reaction. There's almost a sense of glee. It's like the, be- it's like the highlight of the day. They cannot wait to see what kind of punishment daddy's going to dole out on the erring child. <laughs> uh, and there's a significance to the titles that are used for Jesus, in these, all of these letters, for example, in Thyatira, Thyatira is the church that's a mixture of error and truth. They're mainly the error, they're a little bit of truth, and they're allowing the error to take over. Uh, and the, the titles for Jesus in Thyatira are Eyes of Fire, Feet of Furnished Bronze. Both of those titles are, are, are tied in heavily with Old Testament pictures of justice. And judgment, right? So you almost sense it. You almost like be one of my kids. What's going to happen to the church of Sardis? If that's if that's Thyatira, Jesus is coming. That kind of judgment. What kind of judgment is going to come on Sardis? What is? What kind of stick is Jesus coming with to deal with the worst church on the block? It's got to be bad, right? Sardis church selling repackaged cultural death in a Christian wrapper. Sardis, the church, is repeatedly invited back onto the Oprah show. Sardis is the red-headed stepchild at the Asian minor church picnic. What is Jesus going to do to this church? And what does he do? This is what it says. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven spirits are supernatural power in the sense of aid. In the sense of help, the comforter. And seven stars are representative of the angels. He's bringing angelic support, grace, help, love, and promise. Because that's how God is, (laughs) that's what he's like. You think he's gonna put the smack down, but this is his church. He's coming to them to remind them and to re- reignite their minds with the vision of who they really are so that they'll put the poison down and take the blessing and the life and the wealth that they have in Christ. They'll put down the counterfeits. They'll put down the trinkets. And they'll take up their identity in Jesus and not in any fallen or fleshly thing. Uh, Listen to what he says. The one who conquers, he will be clothed thusly in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Three promises. The first one, they will be clothed in white garments. We can't read this in isolation. This comes from primarily a passage in Zechariah. Let me read this. This picture of Zechariah in Zechariah, it's a vision that Zechariah has. And he's in the heavenly court. Uh, God is there. The angel of the Lord is Jesus. Satan is there. And he's accusing Joshua, the high priest, who represents us. And listen to what happens. Well, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? And now Joshua was standing before the angel, that's Jesus, clothed in filthy garments. That's our sin, that's us. And the angel, that's Jesus, said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. It doesn't start there. It starts in Genesis 3, when God takes the fig leaves of their own works and gives them the skins of the animal to cover them, teaching them that they will be covered by the righteousness of another who dies in their place. It's talking about us being given purity. We are given cleanness. It is a gift. We get Jesus' righteousness placed upon us. And this carries through the whole Bible from Genesis 3 into throughout the the Old Testament, From Isaiah, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself out like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. That's how God sees us, because that's what God has done for us. He's completely decked us out in all the righteousness of Jesus how do you know if that's true for you? New Testament says, whoever has been baptized into Christ has been clothed with Christ. And if that's true, you are an heir. You are an heir according not to your works, not to who you are. You are an heir according to promise, what God has promised to do for us. And then it says, second promise. Jesus will never blot your name out of the book of life. Now, maybe you hear that one and you're like, see, that means he might. If he promises that he is going to, if he promises, he says, I'm not going to blot your name out of the book of life, then that must mean that he also might blot your name out of the book of life. Now we have to look at this in context too. We have to look at this in the, in the entire council of God's word. Let me read you one, another passage about the book of life. There's a few of them in the New Testament. This is from Revelation 13.8, and it says, it says this, All who dwell on the earth will worship the beast. Who? Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Now think carefully about that. Because that presents us with three categories. That presents us with those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, who may get blotted out. Uh, That presents us with those whose names were never written in the book of life of the Lamb and therefore never have even a chance of being in there. Because the book of life is never presented in the terms of that we're adding to this daily. It's always presented as a complete document created from the foundation of the world. You're on it or you're not. And if we read this point blank. Uh, if we have believed that God might blot some names out of that book of life, uh, then we have to under- maybe understand that uh, there were a group of people who were never on that book of life to begin with and never had a chance at all. The Bible truth is this: There's lots of talk about blotting out sin, but there's zero talk about blotting out names from the book of life. In fact, in the in the Greek, it's presented in this in the in the most emphatic way of I will never ever blot your name out. It's not a threat. It's not a veiled threat. It's a promise from Jesus that will never happen to you. If your name is on that book, it will never be blotted out. I must say to my kids sometimes, I say, I will never stop loving you. I'm not trying to imply to them that I might. What am I doing? I'm trying to promise and give them assurance that I never, ever will stop loving them. And why is that true? How is it it 's not even possible for him to blot our names out of the book of life because we are wearing his white garments of righteousness, and that 's what we 're going to be judged on, not ours and so that book always presented the book written from before the foundations of the world, including the names of those who are saved, because God knows who he 's going to save and who is saved. And the third promise is, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Courtroom scene, uh, same as the one we just read from Zechariah, just like Joshua the high priest, we are standing before God in our filthy rags. We're being rightly accused by Satan of all the sin and death that we've dealt out over the course of our lifetime. And Jesus, the judge, confesses us. Jesus, who is the judge, looks at the Father and says, that one's mine. That's the one I died for. She is clean. She belongs to me. And I imagine there'll be a time there where uh, there are tears, not just for sadness over our failure, but happiness and astonishment over what Jesus has done for us. And then Jesus will wipe all those tears away and look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant, and usher us into the joy of the Lord. That's what the Spirit says to the churches. And that is better than any temporary thing the world has to offer us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Not because of some of anything but because you loved us first and you gave us hearts that are capable of loving you. You pulled us out of the destruction of death and sin. You've given us new hearts, new lives, new desires, new hopes. And you've given us promises that are so astonishing we would never have thought of them ourselves. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to hold fast to our faith in the real Jesus. We pray that you would help us to hold fast to our witness of the real Jesus, no matter what happens, even unto death. And we pray that through that, Lord, you would bless us to work through us so that we might see a thousand people come to faith in your name. We pray this in Jesus' name.